Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Before we get there, I want to share one more thing with you. Many of you know the Mowrys, very dear servant family uh, in this church for many years. Eric has served as a ruling elder for a while, and Jessica has served as our director of children's ministry. Well, they have decided to relocate to uh, Wisconsin, which is where family are for them, and so they want to be closer to family. Um, Thankfully, that will not happen until March, and so we still have a few months left uh, with the Maoris, but sadly it does mean we're going to be saying goodbye to them um, in the coming months. So I think they've said March at the earliest, so we're happy to keep them here as long as we can. Maybe it'll be later, but um, they wanted you to to know that, and, and I did also, given their high level of involvement here at New Life, and I know they would appreciate your prayers as they prepare for this very significant transition uh, in their lives. The book of Malachi. Hopefully you've all reached that. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible today, there is a paperback Bible underneath a chair in front of you. I would encourage you to grab one of those. It'll help you to follow along with the sermon today. If you have a Bible before you, it's on page 467 in the paperback Bibles. There was um, a British philosopher, a guy named Roger Scruton, who once said this. He said, the best way to understand what people believe about God is to observe them in their worship. The best way to understand what people believe about God is to observe what we are all doing right now in this place. That's a a challenging thought, isn't it? (laughs) A convicting thought. What could be said about you personally, about us as a congregation, about the PCA as a denomination, about us as a nation, about Americans? What could be said about us as we are observed in the process of worship. That's the concern of Malachi, this prophet that we are going to be looking at today. Uh, You know that we have been going through this sermon series called Route 66, where we've been looking at each book of the Bible, one sermon at a time, starting in Genesis and moving all the way through the Bible, and by God's grace today, we arrive at the last book of the Old Testament. We're finishing the Old Testament today. We started this series back on September 9th, 2018, so it took us about a year and two months to get through the Old Testament. The New Testament is shorter, so it won't take us quite as long, Um, but um, this is uh, a major accomplishment to get through the Old Testament. I want to Um, encourage you also that if you were one who was seeking to read through the Old Testament during this series and maybe you found out that you weren't as successful as you hoped, that is a tall order, a hard thing to do, so don't feel bad about that. But let me encourage you to consider uh, reading along with us as we go through the New Testament. 
um, you'll have a couple of weeks to get a head start because next week what I want to do is take just one sermon to talk about the differences between the Old and New Testament, some of the transition that's going on there, what are some things that stay the same and what are some things that are, are different. So we'll just devote a message to that question next week. Uh, and then on November 10, we'll start with Matthew. We'll start the New Testament. So perhaps uh, you would like to try to get through the New Testament, reading one book at a time and coming along with the sermon. I would encourage you to think about that. So we're looking at Malachi today. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi um, was written, we believe, by Malachi. Uh, we don't really know much about him, like many of the minor prophets. That's where we've been here for the last 12 sermons in this series. Malachi, we believe this was written sometime in the mid-400s B.C., so you'll notice this date that I've been giving you is creeping up toward the time of the arrival of Jesus. Mid-400s is after the exile. I've been telling you about how God's people were exiled to Babylon, and then a decree was made for them to go back home to Jerusalem, and there were prophets who came to God's people after their return home, Haggai and Zechariah are two of those prophets. We learned about them in the last two sermons in this series. Um, Malachi comes about 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah. So um, the temple has been rebuilt. That was the concern in Haggai and Zechariah. Well, the temple finally did get built. Good thing. Bad thing, though, is that the people had just lost their passion and their interest in God. They had become spiritually bored. They had fallen into um, a spiritual lethargy, and they were just kind of going through the motions, and God just didn't mean to them what he once did, and that's what Malachi is concerned about. So themes, dead faith is one of Malachi's concerns, the blessings of repentance and obedience and proper worship. Significant events in this book. Really, the event that's going on is um, a series of disputations. A disputation is like a dialogue, a back and forth, a question and answer interaction that takes place between God and his people. His people are asking questions, and God is answering those questions. And there's six of those, and we're looking today at the second disputation between God and his people. Uh, the first disputation, the first few verses of Malachi, the people are asking this question. They're saying, God, how have you loved us? That's their question. They're doubting God's love. How have you loved us? God answers that. And then starting here in verse 6, the next question the people ask is, how have we despised you, God? And God's answer to that is, in the way you worship. And so Malachi has this convicting passage for us to read. We're going to do that now. So please stand if you're able. Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 14. Verse 6. God speaking here. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. 
But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offer from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Oh God in heaven, we pray by your spirit, open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, well, three things we're going to look at here that Malachi says to us in these verses in chapter one. And the first is very simply the importance of worship, the centrality, the importance of worship. Um, It could be said, friends, that you and I have been created, that we exist to worship. That's why God created us, so that we would, would, would glorify him forever. That's the case for everybody who exists, not just for Christians or religious people, but for everybody. The great writer Dostoevsky, in one of his books, he has a character in this book, the Brothers Karamazov, and it says this, so long As man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. We're worshiping creatures. That's the way God made us. We we can't help it. Our hearts naturally attach to things and people and events, and we worship those things. And In redemption, the glory of redemption is that when God saves us, he changes our hearts and points our hearts to the proper object of worship, which is him, the one true God. So we were created to worship, and we were also redeemed to worship. That's our purpose. And God knows that with his people. Now, uh, Jesus' coming is future for these people, but Uh, what the people reading Malachi would regard as their great redemption was the exodus when God delivered them from Egypt out of slavery. God has saved them, and you might remember that God wanted his people out of Egypt so that they would worship him, the purpose of their deliverance. And so that's what the people ought to be doing, but here's what Malachi finds. This 
um, unacceptable worship being offered by his people. And so this is the indictment that God brings, starting in verse 6. Here's the case that God makes against his people. He says, sons honor fathers, servants honor masters. So I am your master, God is saying to his people, I am your father. So how come you're not honoring me? You're not honoring me like you honor your earthly fathers and your earthly masters. Where is my honor, God says in verse 6. Now you see also in verse 6 that God is talking to the priests here. The priests are basically the, the worship leaders for Israel at the time. And so God is speaking to these priests and he goes on to say then um, that um, in verse 6, that the problem is, is that you despise my name. The very end or middle there of verse 6, you despise my name. So that's what God's people hear. Now, obviously, they're going to respond to that. That sounds shocking to them. What are you talking about? You know, they would say outwardly, we love you, God. And so they ask, how have we despised your name? And then in verse 7, God begins to make this case. He says, by offering polluted food upon, upon my altar. He goes on to describe their feeble, unacceptable, weak, empty, heartless worship. That's how you have despised me. I don't want us to miss the very strong language that is being used here that reflects how important God takes worship. Think of that word despise. Another way to look at that is contempt. What he's saying is you hold me in contempt with the way you worship. He, in verse 8, describes these various actions in worship, offering blind animals and sacrifice. He says, is that not evil? What you do in the temple and how you approach me in worship is evil. I mean, when we use the word evil, we think of you know, genocide and child abuse and, and murder, and those things certainly are evil. But what God is saying is that the way these people were worshiping him could be described as evil. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, making this point in the middle of verse 8, would you present to your governor what you're presenting to me? It's a rhetorical question and the answer to that is, is no. He wouldn't accept that from you, so why would I? And the implication there is that our responsibility to God is much higher than our responsibility even to the governing authorities. That's how important worship is. He goes on in verse 10, and he says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. That's shutting the doors of the temple. So that's how we know the temple was built. The temple was existing at this time. Oh, that one of you would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you says the Lord of hosts. I'm not going to accept these offerings from you. What he's saying here is, I would just prefer that you shut the place down and put a for sale sign on it and I'll go do something else rather than come and worship me in the way you have been. What God is doing here is kind of turning the tables on the people because the first question, again, that the people had in verses 1 through 5 was, how have you loved us, God? They're doubting God's love for them. We're not so sure you love us. And what God says back to them is, the question isn't my love for you. The question is how you're showing your love for me. And I don't see it, is what God is saying. In fact, what I see is quite the opposite. 
you seem to despise me by the way you worship me. Do you see what, what is being told to us here? That what God wants from his people in worship is not their second best. It's not what's just left over. Not just something that is merely okay. God wants us to bring the best that we have to him in worship. Have you seen that ad, that AT&T ad, where there's a guy in bed and he's waiting for surgery and his wife is there and, and uh, there's a nurse and the wife asks the nurse, she says, um, have you worked with Dr. Francis before? So Dr. Francis is the surgeon who's about to come in and do the surgery. Have you worked for Dr. or worked with Dr. Francis before? And she says, yeah, he's okay. Do you remember that? You've seen it. It's on TV all the time. Um, and Dr. Francis comes in and asks the patient if he's nervous, and he says, yeah, and then the doctor says, yeah, I am too. <laughs> I am too. You know, and the idea here is you've got a doctor who's, he's okay. You know, he's not really that good. What kind of comfort does that bring to the patient? Zero. And the tagline of the ad is, just okay is not okay. <laughs> just okay is not okay. And that's what Malachi is saying here is when, when my people come to worship me, God says, just okay is not okay. When you think of your schedule this week, friends, and whatever it is that you have on, on your schedule, uh, you might have a big exam if you're a student. You, you might have a, a first job interview. You, you might have a very important meeting at your job. You might have a first date where you're going to be meeting somebody that you think is very special and all of those things are important and you regard them important and rightfully so, but the most important thing that you will do all week long is what you're doing right now. Worship. Now, I, I know that you might say in response, well, yeah, but all of life is worship and, and I worship God in everything that I do. And yeah, that's true. And in fact, that's one of the legacies of the Reformation. That's one of the doctrines that was recovered for us by Martin Luther. It's not just pastors who can worship God. Everybody can worship God. It's not just priests or pastors or ministers who get to go into the presence of God. All of us who belong to Christ are called priests and have that kind of access. So it is true, yeah. Every day is an act of worship, but the context here is coming to the temple. And nowhere in the New Testament do we get the idea that corporate worship is somehow not necessary now that we're all priests. Corporate worship is of essential importance to God, and he wants you to bring your best. So let's look and see what that might look like, because we'll consider now the activity of worship. What actually goes on here, and so Malachi gives us some details about what actually was the problem. Um, the temple was the place where worship activity took place, and here's what would happen. People would, would bring their animals to the temple. This is the way they would worship. They'd bring their bulls and their sheep and their, their goats, and poorer people would bring maybe turtle doves or pigeons, and they would bring these animals and the priest would take those animals and would sacrifice them in the temple. So that's the way worship took place during the time of Malachi. But the problem here is that the people were bringing um, these blemished animals. So look with me at verse 8 again. Verse 8. 
uh, what he calls evil here. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, he says, that's what's evil. And you offer those that are lame or sick, he says, that's, that's evil. Go down to verse 13. Um, later on in verse 13, second half of 13, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you bring this as your offering. You see, this is the problem. Uh, verse 14, he explains it in a little more detail. He says, cursed be the cheat, that is, the person who has a male in his flock, that is, a male animal that could be brought that is unblemished, and he vows to do it, and yet he sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So he takes his, his bad animals, he takes his hurting, lame, sick, blind, blemished animals, and he brings those to God, but he holds back the animals that he has that are unblemished and that are perfect and can maybe earn him some money one day. And he sees personal gain on holding that back. And this is what Malachi is pointing out. <coughs> pointing out and he's saying this is, this is a form of cheating God when you do this. The reason it's so serious is because the scriptures are very clear, if you look back in Leviticus chapter 22, about the kinds of sacrifices people should bring. Here's what it says, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So do you see why Malachi is so concerned here? See, what we're seeing is the role of the prophet. The prophet would call people back to obedience to God's law. The prophet was well acquainted with what the law said. And when the prophet saw that God's people were disobeying the law, they came in and reminded them, look what God said to you. You're not doing this. Not only are the people not doing this, but the priests are not doing this either. Because when the people bring these lame animals, the priest is taking them and sacrificing them in the temple. The priest, at the very least, is one should know better. But he doesn't, and he's offering up the sacrifices. And so Malachi is incensed. God is incensed by this. God is saying, this is how you show that you hate me. You're bringing the worst that you have. Not the best, but the worst. Now, the good news today is that you and I, we don't have to bring animals to church on Sunday mornings. Nobody brought a bull today or a goat or a turtle dove or a lamb. I don't see any here, and that's good. You don't need to do that. There's no need to do that, and the reason is because of the glory of the gospel, which tells us that the Lamb of God has been sacrificed for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lamb slain for before the foundation of the world. The one perfect sacrifice that we've all been longing for, and that all these sacrifices in the Old Testament never measured up to, finally, the Lamb of God came, and Hebrews 7 tells us about this. It was indeed fitting, he says, that we should have such a high priest, referring to Jesus Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, unblemished, no spot, nothing inferior about him, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He has no sin. He's unstained. He's perfect. 
And then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered up himself, paying the penalty for your sins and for my sins. The one final last sacrifice that now gives you and me confidence and assurance that we can come into God's presence. We can approach the throne room of grace without fear of condemnation, with full confidence knowing that God loves and welcomes us with open arms into his worship without bringing any animals because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. So the question now is, okay, if I don't have to bring an animal, what do I bring to worship? What's my responsibility? What, what do I bring? And the answer is yourself. You bring you the best that you have to bring to God. 1 Peter 2 says this, you yourselves, Christians, you're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. You're the temple now to be a holy priesthood. You're priests now to offer spiritual sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, not the sacrifice of bulls, lambs, or goats, spiritual sacrifices that are now acceptable to God, not because you're a good person or because you've got it all together, but it's through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the world. No more bulls or goats, but friends, if this is true, and if God has come to us in the person of his son and laid down his life like this and is resurrected from the dead for our salvation, what I would suggest to you is that the demands that we're reading about here in Malachi 1 are not somehow relaxed, but increased. How much more should we come into the presence of God with the best that we have, now knowing what Jesus has done for us? What, what, what about you? When you come on Sunday mornings, when you approach God in worship, how do you regard that? Do you, do you think about that ahead of time? How do you plan? How do you get ready for Sunday morning worship? Some practical suggestions here. Four, <clears throat> four things that I want to suggest to you. How you can get ready to bring your best. And when I say bring your best, I don't mean bring your, your morality or your perfect life. Because we're all broken people and we all have a lot of shame, guilt, trouble in our lives. I don't mean bringing moral perfection. I mean doing what you can to be ready to worship. And that means planning, first of all. Uh, doing what you can to clear your schedule so that you can be here. <laughs> I mean, you can't worship God well if you're not here. Um, and I know there are conflicts for that for some people, but think ahead, plan, do what you can to be present for Sunday morning worship. Sleep, not during worship, but before worship. On Saturday night, uh, some of you maybe have trouble kind of staying awake. You find yourself drifting, maybe a little bit bored. Does that have anything to do with what you did Saturday night? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. If you're staying up till 2.30 a.m. and coming here to worship, you're probably going to be sleepy. Get a good night's rest. If you had a job interview the next day, you'd get a good night's rest, wouldn't you? Would you stay up till 3 a.m. if you had a job interview at 8 a.m.? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because you want to bring your best to your job interview. Don't you want to bring your best to the God who saved you? Sleep. 
pray. Pray for the service. Pray Saturday night. Pray Sunday morning. Ask for God to, to bless you. If, if you think to yourself, you know, I don't feel like I'm really getting much out of the services. Well, have you asked God to show you something in the services? Pray for the preachers. Pray for the band. Pray for the, the, the volunteers. Pray that great things would happen. Pray that God would come and show us his glory and move in a powerful way. Pray for that. I covet your prayers for what happens here on Sunday mornings. The last thing, review. I would encourage you just to think about taking something with you, just having your mind open to the one um, scripture verse or the, something mentioned in a sermon or something that somebody says to you, a line that you sang in a song, just something that you can hang on to and take with you throughout the week that will bring you encouragement to not just forget what has happened here on Sunday mornings, the moment that you walk out the door. Th those are ways that you can prepare for worship and prepare to bring your best. But lastly, we have also the attitude of worship. Malachi here seems not to be just concerned about the importance of worship or what we do in worship, but even the attitude of heart that we bring to worship. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> and here he's speaking of the priests, that's true, and here's his indictment. You priests, you say, what a weariness this is. <laughs> and you snort at it. Here are the priests. They're in the temple and they're doing the work of God and they're thinking to themselves, what a hassle. What a bore. I sure wish I were somewhere else. I could be having so much more fun doing things so much more productive than being here in this temple sacrificing animals. What a weariness this is. God says that, that that's how you show that you despise me. You come into worship bored. You know, if, if, you're, if you have like no desire for worship, you got to ask yourself, am I ready for heaven? Because do you know that in heaven we're going to be worshiping for all eternity? <laughs> now, of course, the worship in heaven is going to be a whole lot better than the worship here. But this is how we get ready for worship in eternity. We worship here on earth guy named uh, Owen Strahan, I'm not sure how to pronounce that last name, but he, he says this, that this is, I think, a really good attitude to, to bring toward worship. When we gather for the weekly worship service, we gather as those starved for God, starved for transcendence. We've been swimming all week in the normal, the trivial, the earthly, the ordinary, and natural. We need the abnormal, we need the essential, we need the heavenly, we need the extraordinary. This is what weekly worship gives us. At least that's the intent, and that's something that you could pray for. So that's one way we see um, attitude. It's attitude toward God, and the priests are weary in their approach to God. But uh, the second thing here also regarding attitude is the attitude toward the world. Because notice this phrase that shows up three times in this passage, verse 11 from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And then the verse ends, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Skip down to verse 14, the very end of this passage. I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I hope that you've been getting this. I've been trying to uh, reiterate this throughout this series, how important this is to God, that his name is exalted, not just among his people, but a, a, among all people in the world. God chooses a particular single nation for 
a wide, worldly, universal blessing. That's always God's heart, to bless the whole world, not just us. He's already blessed us in the giving of his son for us, but he wants to bless the whole world. He wants the whole world to know his name. So what is the connection between that and worship? Well, John Piper says this really well. He says, he says missions actually is not our primary goal. Worship is. The primary goal of our existence, as I mentioned earlier, is to worship God. Missions is secondary to worship. He says the reason that missions exist is because worship doesn't. That is, there are people throughout the world who don't know Jesus. And so they're not worshiping him. And they're not worshiping whoever they think of as God. They're not worshiping rightly. And so they need to hear about the gospel so they can believe in Jesus, be reconciled to their creator, be redeemed, and then worship properly. That's why missions exist, so that people can worship rightly. And the day is going to come when Jesus comes again, gathering all of his people that he has intended to save. He's going to gather them all together and he's going to bring history to a close. And at that point, missions will stop. There won't be any need for any more missions. But worship will go on forever. Worship is primary. Missions serves the desire to bring people into a state of worship. And when that day comes and we are with Jesus, we will be worshiping alongside people of every tongue and every tribe and every nation saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So very interesting that Malachi has this kind of world universal outlook as he thinks about the worship of his people. So friends, here is what I, I would hope that you would do as a result of hearing what Malachi has to say in, in chapter one here. But my encouragement is to, to rethink how you approach corporate worship on Sunday mornings. To think about the condition that you're in when you arrive on Sunday mornings and, and, and why that is. To think about when you walk out of here on Sunday afternoon, what is your attitude? What, what are you thinking about? To, to think about what you do on Saturday nights and how you plan for your Saturday nights. To, to think about how... We play and sing music here and, and how you, in response to the band, sing along to think about how you're, how you're offering your voices up to God, to, uh, to, to think about how you listen to sermons for Brian and me and others who preach here, to think about how we prepare sermons and deliver sermons, to think about what you bring in terms of your resources as you give back to God, to, to think about your prayerful mindset to think about your attitude toward your brothers and sisters in Christ when you come here every Sunday morning. Think about those things and let it be observed by any who looks at new life worshiping that we are a people who find the risen Jesus altogether lovely, altogether worthy, and altogether wonderful. And we're going to sing and show just how much we believe that as we sing this final song now. So let's pray. God, um, you are indeed lovely, worthy, wonderful. We acknowledge, Lord, that our hearts often drift from that. Uh, we acknowledge, Lord, that it's just easy for us to become bored with you. Just, we just confess that. I confess that myself, Lord, that that's true of me. 
Please, Lord, open my eyes, open our eyes, ignite our hearts that we might be more fully devoted to you than ever before. And let us be a people who worships you well so that your heart is glad as your redeemed people lift up praises to you. In Jesus' name.